Today we come to the 22nd chapter of Matthew. We're working, moving slowly to the end. And we come to the third in a series of three parables. This one, the parable of the marriage feast. Very fitting today, since a number of us yesterday had the joy of celebrating the Matthew of Matthew and Emily Crum, as of now. We participated in a wedding feast at Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. There was good meat and potatoes for the men, and good vegetables for the women, and good cake for the children. And we all ate well. And we celebrated. There were candles, there were lights, everything was decorated, there was music. The only thing that was missing was wine. But every marriage feast has its defect. There was a good party. And it's good to keep the last wedding you attended in mind as we read this parable that Jesus tells. Before we read it, let me exhort you, don't be too rigid as you think about this parable. This parable makes no sense, humanly speaking. It's not a parable that you would ever have experienced in your own life. You couldn't even imagine something like this happening. And that's because Jesus is telling this parable to illustrate for us the nature of the kingdom of God. And so stories are only as good as they do what they're intended to do. And this story is not intended to make you think about how you should act at the next wedding banquet that you're invited to. But this story is intended to make you wise to salvation. Let us then hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Now you understand, after I've read it, why it is that I say that this text is not a real uh, true life experience. It's very hard to imagine being invited to any wedding feast and turning the invitation down, right? Now, sometime in your life, you will probably have the responsibility to do so. There'll come a time in your life when 
you have an invitation which you know is not sent sincerely. They, they have to ask you. You are, after all, a relative. But they really would prefer that you not come. And in such a case, the proper thing to do is to decline the invitation. You know, if it's going to make things awkward for the guests or for uh, the father of the bride, for you to be there, don't go. You know, maybe you're the spurned lover. And uh, it would be just as good that you didn't go. So there are some circumstances in which we could understand that we would decline an invitation. However, no matter how awkward and gnarly it would be for you to go to a wedding that you're invited to, I don't think there's one among us that would decline a wedding invitation from the king. Even if it made some people awkward for us to go, I think we'd go. You know, if you get a chance to go to the White House and to be there at the marriage feast of the president's son or daughter, you're going to go. Or, for instance, think if you were in England and you got an invitation to Buckingham Palace. You know, think of all the preparations, all the good meat. You can smell it miles away as you make your way to the wedding feast. You get in there and there are flowers everywhere, cut flowers. They've all been, they've all been harvested and brought in. The music is playing and all the beautiful people are there. You wouldn't turn that down, would you? The king. And that's at the center of this story, that the king has sent out invitations to the wedding feast of his son. Now, some of you don't understand the language that's here. You don't understand who the king is and who his son is. Well, the king is God. And this earth, everything that we see is made by his hands. It, it didn't make itself. It, it, it didn't come out of the, uh, of the primeval slime. God created the heavens and the earth. This is how the word of God begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all from all through history, from the time of Adam's fall at the very beginning until today, God has been sending out his messengers to invite us into the marriage feast of his son. And you think, well, what on earth is the marriage feast of his son? Well, the marriage feast of God's son is the banquet at which the bride and the groom are united and celebrate their marriage. And who is the bride of God's son? The bride of God's son is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not Islam. It's not Confucius. It's not Buddha. It's, it's not any religion except the worship of Jesus Christ. Anybody that does not point to Jesus Christ is a liar. There is only one God, one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. If you go into the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, you'll see that the prophets refer to the church, which in the Old Testament was Israel. They refer to the church always as the bridegroom. This is the meaning of the book of Hosea, where you have Hosea as the prophet marrying a woman of ill repute. And she is married so that there's a picture in front of the bride of Christ of the bride of Christ. You know, it's like those mirrors where there's a mirror showing you what the mirror is showing you, showing you you. And so the book of Hosea is this image of the bride of Christ being unfaithful to her bridegroom. 
and how the bridegroom continues to go after and to seek his unfaithful wife. She has children by other men. He continues to go after her and to seek her heart, finally buying her out of slavery and bringing her home, knowing she's been unfaithful and continuing to love her. And so all through the Old Testament, we have this theme of, of, of the bridegroom who is God's son, Jesus Christ, and of his of his bride, who is the church, and how she's continually going after other lovers. Again and again and again, her heart is drawn away from her bridegroom, and the bridegroom calls her back to the wedding feast. Calls her back to the wedding feast. Calls her back to purity. Now, who carries the call? Well, the call is carried by the prophets. The prophets are said again and again and again to the bride calling her back to her bridegroom, to the marriage feast. And what does she do? Well, what we're reading today is a part of a larger whole. And if you look at the larger whole, you look at chapter after chapter at this point in Matthew, what you see is that there's a progression, there's an interrelatedness, there's a connection between everything that happens at this point in Jesus' life. And it's important that we are able to see the larger picture and not just focus on one little text, but see that text as it's interrelated to the other parts of the book of Matthew. So look back at chapter 21, if you have a Bible, and you'll see that what precedes three parables, three stories Jesus tells with a point, is the triumphal entry of Jesus to the holy city, the city of God, Jerusalem. So now I've told you that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So Jesus is coming to the church, which are the Jews. He's coming to their city. And when he comes, they all go out to worship or to, yes, to worship him. But the religious leaders are opposed. And so Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. He's worshiped and adored. And the first thing he does is go in and cleanse the temple. Now, the temple was the place that was supposed to be sort of the depository of all the grain of the kingdom. And the temple was the place that was given over to the worship of God. And it was dirty, and Jesus cleaned it. He he came into the heavenly city of Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple, and then he showed the barrenness of the temple and of the people of God by cursing the fig tree the religious leaders challenge his authority, and then he tells the first parable, which is the parable of two sons. And he says, what do you think, verse 28 of chapter 21, a man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you, will be welcomed to the marriage feast before you. And then he says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Okay, so who sent out to call them to the wedding feast? John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes out, and he says to them, The kingdom of God is near. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths. 
Lower the hills and raise the valleys. Make the path flat and straight. And who listens to John the Baptist? Well, the ones that listened to John the Baptist were the sinners, the publicans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And they repented. And who didn't repent? You remember what happened when the religious leaders came? They wanted to make a show of piety. And they came to John the Baptist so that they too would be baptized. And John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so here we have it. We have the prophet John the Baptist going out to announce that the feast is ready and to welcome everyone to repentance. And, and, and many, many people don't want to repent, do they? They don't want to put on the righteousness of Christ. They don't want to admit the filth of their sins. And so they harden their hearts, at, but not the sinners and not the prostitutes and not the publicans. So all, all the goody-two-shoes people reject the prophet. And you remember what happens eventually to John the Baptist, don't you? He is killed. But the prostitutes and the tax collectors of the hated Roman Empire come in and accept the invitation to repent and they're baptized. You see, Jesus is telling a story about God and his son. He's presenting a picture through the story of what God has done in preparing a feast And all through the Bible, you have an account of the feast. That's all the Bible is. It's just one large extended picture story of man's need because of sin and of God's provision through his lamb, his perfect lamb, and then of the announcement of God's provision first to the Jews and then on the main highways to everybody they can find And then an account of the response of those who hear and receive the announcement to that announcement. This story is all of Scripture. And how do we respond to the announcement? Well, there are two groups here. Well, maybe you could argue that there are actually four or five, but anyhow, let's say three. Okay? Just just cause. Let's say three. All right? Look and you'll see who these groups are and how they respond. The dinner's ready, verse 4. The king says, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And then we see the first group in verse 5. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his business. Now, who are these? Well, these are people that are indifferent. These are people who couldn't care less. These aren't people that hate the king, are they? They're people that love money, right? These are people who love work because work produces money. You have to love money to be a farmer, don't you? And even known farmers, dairy farmers, you have to love money to be a dairy Well, either that or your cows, right? Either that or your dad puts such a guilt trip on you to take over the farm that you have to do it. (laughs) Farmers work hard, don't they? They work very hard. And so the invitation goes out and the world is filled with those who live in the city and are merchants and 
are down at the store making, making their hundreds and their thousands and their tens of thousands. And out in the country, the farmers who are down at the milk house, morning and night, day after day, year after year. And so when the wedding announcement comes to them, we read their response is, what? They paid no attention, and they went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. Now, the second group, how do they respond? It says the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. And again, this doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, you wouldn't see this in real life. Somebody comes to you and announces that you're invited to come to Buckingham Palace for a wedding feast, and, and so you kill them. It makes no sense, right? None. And yet it is an absolutely accurate description of how the people of God have always treated the preachers of righteousness, always. And if you keep going through this section of Matthew and you assume that it has a point, that it is coherent, that it holds together... If you look at what's going on here, you'll see that at the end of this section, here is what Jesus says in chapter 23 at the very end, the last three verses. Jesus sums up everything he's been saying in these parables, and he says this. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We skip up to verse 34 that immediately precedes it. I meant to read that also. Actually, you could skip up (laughs) forever. But look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. who kills the prophets. And so all of this section is showing what is about to happen to the prophet and the priest and the king, our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes to Jerusalem, and the sinners and the publicans welcome him. He goes straight to the temple, and what does he do? He cleanses it. And then they come to him, and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And the men who have decided that they're going to use the marriage feast of the Lamb to feather their own bed, their own nest, to profit off it, they're going to eat the sheep, they're not going to protect them. They're going to use the things of God for their own perky lives. These souls will be exposed. And Jesus exposes them in parable after parable after parable. The two sons, one says no and does, the other says yes and doesn't. What does Jesus say will happen to them? And then we come to the next parable that immediately precedes ours, which is the one of the landowner. 
And again, having heard our parable, let's go and read the one that came immediately before it. In chapter 21, 33, Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent out another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who what? Who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. The ones that accept the invitation to the marriage feast of the lamb, the wedding feast, are the ones who pay him the proper produce, the proper profit from his vineyard. All right. Now, we said there are at least three groups, and we see that the first group is those who paid no attention, verse 5, and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The second group, the rest, verse 6, who seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. And how does the king respond when they mistreat his slaves and kill them? Well, verse 7 tells us the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Now, people, God is not a teddy bear. God is not a kind, old, enfeebled grandpa. God is not the God of evangelicalism. God is wrathful and holy. And the Bible could not be more clear about the consequences of those who reject the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And although all of the world will try to get you to listen to and to respond to the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb, By speaking gently to you, make no mistake that this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible makes it clear to you again and again and again the consequences that will come to you if you reject the Son. No father takes lightly the treatment of his son, particularly if that son is his only begotten son. And again and again, Jesus himself shows us what will happen to those who mistreat the Son. How does the the owner of the vineyard respond when he sends his son and they kill him? How does he respond? Jesus is very clear about it. They will be destroyed. And what about those who are invited to the marriage feast? When they kill the messengers, how, how, how will the king respond? Well, it says here very, very clearly how he'll respond. The king was enraged. Does God feel rage? God feels rage. God has rage. The king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire. Now, there are many things in this text that are disagreed over. 
by those who are students of Scripture. But nobody disagrees over what's going on here. Everybody says, this is Jesus foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I don't know if I'll be able to find it quickly. But let me read to you, maybe... I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. Very interesting statement by Matthew Henry about the destruction of Jerusalem, where he talks about rarely has the world ever seen such horror as in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem and the temple particularly were destroyed. And we think these were the people of God. How is it that God called them out of Egypt and and cared about their suffering and tenderly dealt with them century after century after century? Uh, uh, beseeching, uh, beseeching them to return to him, uh, putting up with their sins, listening to Moses when Moses said, consume me, but don't consume your people because of what it will do to your reputation and those that are watching. God constantly, the patient, patient father. But in A.D. 70, God showed his wrath. And the people of God were consumed. As a matter of fact, almost none of us here this morning can fail to recognize how the people of God are still consumed today. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the fact that this church, which is given to the worship of that same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, this church is composed not of Jews, not of the people of God, but of true Jews, those who will give him his just deserts. Those who will give him the return on his vineyard. Those who will accept the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And who are they today? Well, maybe without exception here today, maybe there's one exception. But all of us are what? We're all Gentiles. Every single one of us is a Gentile. We're not the people of God. But God has grafted us in. God has grafted us in. Now, that's our joy, but you must understand that that's also God's judgment. And there is a point at which God is not patient anymore. All of God's attributes, his kindness, his long-suffering, and his holiness and his wrath exist in perfect harmony with each other. They're not fighting God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. You're sick of hearing this, but I can't say it often enough. The God of the Old Testament is not in conflict with the God of the New Testament. And one day the God of the New Testament won, and now it's a matter of just announcing to the world what God has already done. And it really doesn't matter how you respond, because it's done. And all you need to do is, is recognize what's been done, and then you'll see the joy that is yours. This is the God of liberalism. Just announce what's already done. God's done the work. Whatever work needed to be done, and really the wrath of God against sin and the judgment against sinners was not the work that needed to be done according to liberalism. We just needed somebody to show us a higher sense of what, well, not man, what men and women, what persons were intended to be. That's liberalism. And so we just announce to people what's already been done. 
No judgment, no 70 A.D., no destruction of Jerusalem, no turning away from the people of God and welcoming in the dirty goyim. But that, that doesn't happen, right? To most of the world, that's a scandal, and yet that's precisely what's going on here. What we see here is that the king was enraged because they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and some seized his slaves and mistreated and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire, and then he had another go at it. Why? Well, because he will have a marriage feast. <laughs> his son has been sacrificed. And there will be a bride. There has always been, all across history, a bride. The pillars of hell will not prevail against God's seeking of his bride. And so what does he do? He has another go at it. And we read, what do we read? Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Now, people, you and I are these, this second set of servants. And we're now at the time when we're supposed to go out onto the main highways. You know, we're supposed to go to where? Bypassed and East Third. Right? Right in front of CVS, Right? Or how about Kirkwood? I-65. We're supposed to go down to Tijuana. We're supposed to go to the teeming masses of Pakistan. And what are we to do? We're to announce to everyone we run into that the king has the marriage feast ready and they're invited. They're the guests of honor. Do you know that one of the best indications of whether or not you have accepted the invitation to the feast is whether you try to find as many other people as you can and bring them with you? I mean, you'd have to be an idiot not to take people with you. If everybody's invited and the king's putting on a feast, I know, it's crazy. That wouldn't happen. But let's just say it did happen. Let's say that God is the king and that God has announced to everyone, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find that the meat is ready, that the oxen and the fattened livestock have been killed, that the water is waiting, that the table is set, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is held out to you, that you no longer have to live with your sin, that it's removed by the righteousness of the Lamb, that all of heaven is waiting for you, that the angels are waiting to rejoice when one sinner comes home, that God has said He will receive you. In fact, He has commanded you to come. Come to Me. Everything's ready. And how could we, having accepted the invitation, 
have a heart that has no desire to see our next-door neighbor and our relatives and our sons and daughters and the people that we work with, the people we teach, the people that teach us, how could we have no heart for them? There's not a shortage of meat at this feast. There aren't some sins and some people so dirty that they will not be accepted at the marriage feast of the Lamb. After all, you'll be there. And so how is it that we have absolutely no zeal, no care, no concern to go out into the main highways and to welcome anybody there? You know, but isn't that the way we always are? Our most precious gifts, we think that they're zero-sum games and we better hold on as tight as our little fists can hold them and, and keep from having to share them with any. You know? Well, brothers and sisters, this is one treasure that can't be outspent. And so the king does what? He consumes the first people and then he sends us out And he says, go to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feasts. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found. And does this describe us as a church? All they found, and then what does it say? Both evil and good. Now, I don't know who the the evil people are in here, right? There are lots of you that are very good. I'm the evil one. But we are a motley crew, aren't we? We are the evil. And we have been welcomed. We have the table set, and I keep pointing to this table. It's not set. I know it's not set. But hey, there is water in the baptismal. We've got the water. We've got the food. We have the Word of God. We have our musicians leading us in praise to to the Lamb. Here in this humble place, we have everything that God has made ready for us. Both evil and good are present, and the wedding hall is filled with dinner guests. And then, this is where evangelicals want Jesus to stop speaking. Because Jesus keeps doing good things and then ruining them. Now, I don't mean to be sacrilegious in saying that, but I want you to understand that what comes next, not one publishing company in Wheaton would put in the Bible. And what is it? Well, look at what it says next. It says, but. And the word but usually means but. It says, but, verse 11, when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Now, it's apparent that this man was a hypocrite that was known only to God. Even the angels couldn't see him. Everybody else at the marriage feast thought he passed, didn't they? Nobody was singling him out until the king came in, and the king had unerring judgment. And the king came in and immediately saw that there was one man there who was not dressed appropriately he didn't have the right clothing on now at this point i want to ask you what is going on here 
what's the clothing that he's supposed to have on? And I know all of you are going to respond and say that the clothing is what? Well, the clothing, obviously, yes, that's what everybody will say. The clothing is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? It's obviously what the clothing is. If you and I were to stand before God and answer the question on what basis he should allow us into the marriage feast of the Lamb, every one of us, maybe not every one of us, but most of us know that the proper response is, I claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I claim the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to read you, though, a text from the book of Revelation where we have a picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb. I want you to see what it says the clothing is that's proper. And this is what it says in Revelation 19:7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Marriage feast. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Now, Maybe you have forgotten what this is, but I'm in the middle of it. Last night I was sitting up at my desk in my bedroom, and I was working on the sermon. And because we have a cathedral ceiling on our ground floor, and because the cathedral part of it ends right at our bedroom door, I'm the first one up there to know if somebody's burning the toast. Because it goes straight up, boom, boom, and right up to my desk. People on the ground floor could not know, but I know. Well, last night, a chocolate cake was being baked. And I sat there and smelled and smelled and smelled and smelled, and it was driving me wacko. It smelled so good. And so finally, I got up and I went outside, not outside, but outside the bedroom, and I looked out over our downstairs, and there were three people cuddled up together on the couch. Lucas and... You'd be right if you said Hannah. And those of you that are visitors, Hannah and Lucas are about to be married. And there was a third person cuddled up with them. Cuddled, really, cuddled. (laughs) You'd be amazed what computers do. And the third person was the future mother-in-law, my wife. What were they doing? No, they were not praying. This is just a bunny. (laughs) They were not praying. What they were doing was they, they were going over the wedding garments. And in on our dining room table was a sewing machine. This has been going on for months. It's no small thing to dress for a marriage, for a wedding ceremony, for a feast, is it? Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Snookered you, didn't it? It got you. 
What righteous acts do you have? And you'd say, oh, Tim, you just blew it. You were doing so well. And now you've asked us about our righteous acts. We don't have any righteousness. Don't you know the hymn? Not what my hands have done. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And this not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And brothers and sisters, I tell you, I will not allow you to despise the word of God. I will not allow you. And so, again, because our hearts are hard against the truth, let me read. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What was this man missing? This man was missing his wedding garment. What was his wedding garment? What he was missing was the fruit. The Bible never, ever, ever separates faith from fruit. Never. That's something our deceitful and sinful hearts do. The Bible never does it. The Bible says, don't tell me you love God and hate your brother, because the truth isn't in you. If you don't love your brother, then you can't love God, because you've seen your brother and you haven't seen God. You can't love the man you haven't seen and hate the man you have seen. And it's absolutely impossible to separate the love of God and the love of your brother, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. You cannot have the righteousness of Christ and not have the righteous fruit and acts of the saints. You can't have it. You cannot believe in God and be fruitless. You can't do it. You can have something approximating a marriage in which you have the marriage bed but no babies. But it's an aberration. It's a monster. It's sterile. But you cannot have the marriage feast of the Lamb and have it be fruitless. God will not have anybody at his table, at the betrothal and the consummation of the bride and the bridegroom. There will be nobody in heaven who is fruitless, not one person. And that is in absolutely not in any way in competition with the texts of Scripture that tell us that we can't bring anything in our hands because it's all of Jesus. The point is that you absolutely cannot have Jesus without having fruit. Think earlier of where I was talking about being welcomed to the wedding feast. And how can you see the beauty of the wedding feast and have a cold heart and not invite anybody? It's just crazy. You can't have any comprehension of what the wedding feast is and what the joys are that are awaiting you if you have no desire to bring your loved ones and your neighbors and your children. Right? Now, it's in the same way that you cannot be those who welcome the invitation, receive the invitation, go in, make the wedding hall filled, the feast hall filled, and then are sitting there not dressed in the righteousness of Christ because you are not dressed in the righteous sacks of the saints. The Bible is very clear. It says in Revelation 19, verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous sacks of the saints. 
Now, I'm not trying to say that that uh, if you're dressed in the righteousness of Christ, but you fail to produce fruit, that uh, therefore the righteousness of Christ is not sufficient. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you don't have the righteousness of Christ if you don't have fruit. It's impossible. The Reformed doctrine is not justification by faith alone. (laughs) And you go, whoa. (laughs) I thought that's what it was. No, it is justification by faith alone, but not faith by itself. Romans and James are not in conflict with each other. Justification of James is what proves the justification of Romans. It justifies saving faith. In other words, it proves it. And so when the master of the hall, when the king walks in and to the wedding feast and he sees this usurper, this counterfeit at the table, what does he say? Now, there are many of us here this day who need to hear this carefully. What is the end of those who for decades and decades and decades sit in the hall of the feast? What is the end of those who take the waters of baptism and the table of fellowship and the preaching of the word and the leading of the godly musicians and the prayers of the saints and the promises of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, what is the end of those who take the precious things that God has given us and despise them? Who use them to have a certain patina, a certain uh, false uh, laminate, uh, a certain appearance of being wedding guests, to cover their own faithlessness. Well, we read that Jesus tells us that the king came to look over the dentist's guests. He saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? He looked good until that moment, didn't he? And then the judge came, and the judge is clear. How did you come? without wedding clothes. Now put yourself in the shoes of that man. You look good. You are a perfect counterfeit. You are attentive to the preaching of the Word. You were baptized. You came to the Lord's Supper. You even wrote blogs about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You spoke with the tongue of men and angels. But you had not love. And we read at the end of verse 12 that the response of this man when he was found out at last was what? And it says the man was speechless. Finally, finally, finally. There was nothing left to say. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. 
For God so loved the world that He gave it. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I was baptized in a Missouri Synod Lutheran. I was a Roman Catholic. I lit many, many candles to Mary. I said my rosary in front of the abortion clinic. I, I gave my body to be burned. And then the king comes in and he sees that he's not dressed in wedding clothes. He says to him, friend. Why friend? Why did he say friend? Well, because this man had tasted of the things of the Spirit. This king knew this man. This man had spent three years with him. This man had been the keeper of the treasury. This man's hand dipped into the bowl with him. Friend. How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless because the day had come. And what is the response of the king? It says, verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, What? Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, people... It's very much in vogue today to deny that there is a perpetual torment of those who are not in Christ. Many names in evangelicalism have moved over to either universalism or to what we know as annihilationism. That, you know, don't worry about it. When you die, if you're not in Christ, you just cease to exist. Now, it seems like, it seems wacko to say, don't worry about it, right? But somehow it is a relief from the doctrine of perpetual hell torment. But make no mistake about it. This is not Jesus' doctrine. Jesus says, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not just the ceasing of existing. It is perpetual worms that don't die, fire that never goes out, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the end of the hypocrite. Now known only to God. But on that day, absolutely perfect judgment. And he was speechless. And then he was bound hand and foot and cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those of you who have been spelunking here in Bloomington, you've been down a deep, deep, deep passageway. And maybe your, your batteries have gone out. And you know what dark is, don't you? You know what black is. And then add to it perpetual torments, perpetual weeping and gnashing of teeth. No light. No light. And this is the end of the hypocrite. And Jesus himself tells us. And then he ends with this statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so how would I end the sermon? How would I end it? Do you remember what he said when he sent out the messengers? Go out to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. How would I end the sermon? I'd end the sermon by showing you that the invitation is going out to everybody. There's nobody here that has not this morning heard the invitation to come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. You've heard. Jesus is in front of you and he says, come. 
And you are able to come because He commands you to come. And immediately some of you are smarter than you should be, too smart for your britches. And you say, yes, but many are called, few are chosen. And I say, you know, God is never in conflict with Himself. God says, come. He commands that you come. And you say, oh, but I'm the hypocrite. I'm the one that's hidden. And I say, so? Show it! Confess your hypocrisy. Come! He will receive you. It's Satan that's the accuser. Satan is the one that says, you can't come. You've been a hypocrite for 30 years. You're a preacher. You're an elder. You're a Titus II woman. The pastor referred to you as a mother in Israel. The Bible says, come. And it's a command from God. And what God commands you to do, He gives you the ability to do. You may come. And you say, yeah, but it says many are called and few are chosen. And I say, yes, and there are those this morning that will not come. And when you stand before God on that day, and He says, friend, you're not dressed right. And you say to Him, many are called, few are chosen. He will say, silence! And He will say, you refused my command. You would not come. Don't you speak to me about my sovereign election. God does elect us. And we cannot come without His calling us and choosing us. And that is in no way in opposition to His command. He says, come! And on that day, if you're not dressed in the righteousness of Christ, you will have nobody to blame but yourself. You will finally not be able to blame your father. And you will not be able to blame your mother, and you will not be able to blame your preachers. You will not be able to blame Trinity Broadcasting Network. You will not be able to blame Billy Graham or Rick Warren. You won't be able to blame the Word of God because it offends you by calling mankind man. You will not be able to blame your preacher who wasn't quite sensitive and gentle enough for you. You won't be able to blame your wife because she committed adultery on you, and that's what Christians are like. You won't be able to blame anything but you yourself who heard the gospel proclamation and who hardened your heart because, hey, you loved your work, you loved your money, or you simply hated God because he's a God who says many are called but few are chosen. Do you understand? God says come. And you can come. And He will receive you. Why? Because you're a sinner. That's why. Because you're a sinner. Now, if you're righteous, you may not come. Because Jesus said He didn't come for the righteous. And all the Pharisees and scribes and all the elders at the time of Christ, did they come? A few in the book of Acts. There are a few. But most of them, no. They didn't come. What did they do? They killed Him. You can pull the wool over my eyes. You may even be able to pull the wool over the elders' eyes and the tightest two women's eyes. But one day, every secret will be revealed. And God's judgment is perfect. 
And so I leave you with the call of the king. The porter houses are well marbled, and they're simmering. And the angels are ready to rejoice. The music is glorious. Don't worry, it won't be rock or classical. It'll be something in between that everybody likes. And Jesus, Jesus will be there. Jesus. And for those who have the righteousness, every tear will be dried, every disappointment made up. There won't be any color there. And there'll be Pakistanis and Americans. Right, Kayum? It'll be one nation. It belongs to the Lamb. So come. Let's pray.